Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. I'm Amy Rojic, Director of BDO Center for Governance, and I'm so happy to have the chance to sit down today with Cynthia Clark to discuss how the ability to voice values can change behavior and drive better decision-making in the boardroom. We will examine how a framework approach can be used to critique real board issues to strengthen director independence, competence, and dynamics in the boardroom. Cynthia is the executive director for Bentley University's Harold S. Janine Institute of Corporate Governance, a role she's held for 13 years. In this role, Cynthia has researched and written extensively, analyzing thousands of shareholder resolution proposals and the way in which firms address conflicts of interest, proxy voting, data privacy, and disclosing material and ESG information. Recent work examines how companies in the S&P 1500 vary in their approach to nominating committee processes with regard to gender diversity. She has served as the ethics and governance advisor to the board of the pre and post IPO Origin Bank, a NASDAQ listed $4 billion financial institution. Cynthia is a governance fellow with the NACD and a member of the Society for Governance Professionals and active on 50-50 women on boards. She further serves on the steering committee of the Boston Regional Business Ethics Network and helps establish and govern the International Corporate Governance Society, ICGS. She currently serves on the fundraising committee of the Boston Public Library and volunteers with the Stepping Stone Foundation and Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. And she was the recipient of the 2017 Fulbright Scholar Award. Cynthia, welcome to BDO in the boardroom. I wanted to start by acknowledging that you're also a published author of two other books and numerous articles in top-tier business journals. And today, I would love to explore your most recent book, Giving Voice to Values in the Boardroom, and what makes this a must-read and a must-do for corporate directors. So perhaps we can begin by describing where Giving Voice to Values originated, perhaps a bit about the framework itself, and truly what triggered your interest in the application and implementation to board governance. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for inviting me to BDO in the Boardroom. I'm very happy to be here. The Giving Voice to Values framework is an application-based framework that many disciplines can use. I've chosen to apply it to, as you know, the boardroom and director's role specifically. So in general, the GVV, as we call it, framework deals with anticipating what stakes are involved in a particular value-laden situation. Normally, it's involving values conflicts, and we ask, what's at stake for the parties involved, and what are the reasons and rationalizations that you might get pushback? And one of the signature aspects of GVV is that you already know what the right thing to do is. So I don't spend a lot of time talking about 
what should someone do? What are the ethics of the situation? This takes sort of what we call a post-decision-making framework or position in the sense that you know what the right thing to do is. We focus on how to get that thing done. And we do that through reframing, pre-scripting, practice, um, because studies have shown that when you do all those things, you're, you're voicing your values, you're staying true to who you are. You're also rising to the occasion of your position in an organization. And the reason that I think it really applies directly to directors is, as you know, and many of the audience members know, directors have inherently values-based challenges. Let's just look at two of the duties that we all know about. The duty of loyalty, which is we must make decisions on an independent basis. We must do them in good faith. We must honestly discharge our duties. All those things involve values. Uh, the second is the duty of care, which is obviously the exercise of care, diligence, skill, asking the right questions, etc. So you can see that those two duties right, right there, which are the core of what directors do, are value laden. And let me say a, a thing about values just before we move on. So you can value innovation or creativity, but the kinds of values we're focusing on are moral values. And so when I read you know, the duty of loyalty and the duty of care, what I'm reading into that is those types of moral values, okay? Just to lay the groundwork on that. Uh, the post-decision-making and the sort of already knowing what the right thing to do will come alive when you and I go through some of the specific examples that I write about, because the book outlines five core challenges uh, that I have found directors face uh, through my research. And they are independence, uh, board director independence, director selection slash nominating committee, CEO succession and planning for the future, CEO compensation, and also cybersecurity and digital innovation. Those sort of challenges are, as you can even see, uh, definitely value values laden. No, thank you for that. And, and and I love that your book does take that very practical approach because you're right. I think all of the scenarios and situations that board members find themselves within the boardroom, whether it's engaging with directors, engaging with management teams, feeling external pressure from whether it's analysts, shareholders or other stakeholders, it is the directors need to fall back on their own internal ethical and moral framework that they rely on. But I love that your book is so practical in walking through some of the kind of understandable scenarios that are common to the boardroom. So it allows the directors to think through these considerations within the GVV framework, pre-script as you're describing, and then prepare for board challenges. So maybe you could take us through. I was I was um, particularly caught up with uh, the concept of the gray director, which I believe many boards, large and small, will find relevant. So maybe take us through that and, and share with our audience today. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I, I have this, this board challenge, which is basically a scenario that is based on uh, interviewing directors, my own research, my own involvement with uh, you know, various professional associations in the corporate governance space. And from that, I created this uh, board challenge called uh, um, Independence and the Gray Director. So gray directors are directors who, are, who lack 
perceived independence for one or more reasons, but they are nonetheless independent for regulatory purposes. So this is an interesting nuance. And once we go through this, uh, this might resonate with some of your listeners' actual board situations. And so we could have a, a, a great director who is a former employee or a consultant. They would be okay for regulatory purposes as long as it's three years ago, uh, those kinds of things. Sometimes people are perceived as gray if they um, have social relationships with the CEO or management, maybe even have a an office at, at the headquarters. Or, And this is a really kind of common one now, which is someone who serves on a second or third board with another director or the CEO. So these are the kinds of directors that I would categorize as gray. So I put together a scenario where um, two of the five independent directors at a particular company um, have begun to exhibit what is sort of a lack of independence of mind. They don't speak up or question the CEO as they once did, and they rely heavily on management briefings to tell them what is going on inside the firm. So I position that, you know, there's a protagonist, her name happens to be Teresa. Um, and delving further into this, um, these two board members have the longest tenure on this particular board, over 10 years each. One attended college with the CEO in the mid-1980s, right? It takes place present day. And the other one frequents the same country club as the CEO. So she's she's noticing this situation and she's also noticing that that there's this lack of independence of mind. So prior to that scenario in that particular chapter, I explain all the things that boards must do with regard to independence. And one of the interesting things about independence is when you when you sort of look through this is that the it is really up to the board itself whether a director can exercise independent judgment given the facts and the circumstances. That's an important thing to remember in this particular scenario and in, in boards. So what happens uh, here now is you've got these two board members who are perceptually not independent. Adding to this issue is a large group of, of, of uh, investors or an investor group has um, is urging shareholders to vote against the re-election of these two directors, citing you know extreme clubbiness and so on and so forth. So this is the scenario. So Teresa Hughes, right, who's a director, is recognizing this as a problem. And imagine yourself being in her shoes and you know that something needs to be done. That's where we start off. We don't tell you, you know, I don't tell you in the book what needs to be done. I just walk, um, because, and for the simple reason that there are a number of things you could do, but it's clear that something needs to be done with regard to these two directors. So that's where we sort of start off, right? What, what, what I take the reader through is, again, being in Teresa Hughes's shoes and, you know, uh, we we start off by saying, well, what's at stake for Teresa if she speaks up or if she offers evidence or if she uh, gets best practices from you know any one of the organizations that are putting that stuff out? What what's at stake for her? What's at stake for these two directors? What's at stake for the CEO? Uh, what's at stake for shareholders? 
right? You know, you know, having independent board directors is directly related to how well your board performs, how well it monitors. And so we go through those stakes. Then what we do is we talk about, well, what kind of pushback are you going to get? And we call them rationalizations. And you can kind of put rationalizations into four different categories, right? Standard of practice, materiality, um, you know, uh, sort of this everybody does it idea, you know, and so on. And what we do is we, we anticipate what the pushback might be. For example, you might have a director who's been there for 10 years and somebody might say, you know, uh, one of two things, standard of practice would be, well, you know, everybody has directors who are, who are lacking in independence for some reason or another, right? So you're going to hear that kind of thing. So we ready Teresa and thus the board that I might be consulting with for that rationalization. How would you respond to that? You know, another one could be, well, you know, somebody who's been there for 10 years, you know, has a lot of institutional knowledge and so on and so forth. So we prepare, you know, I anticipate the rationalizations that you're going to get. And then through, through, uh, you know, Teresa Hughes, we imagine how we would address that because we are going to deal with the independence issue. <laughs> it's not, it's not an option to not deal with it, right? That's the post-decision-making idea. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I think, you know, and the example is, is kind of genius in its simplicity because this is a commonality, especially when we look at the average tenure of most public company boards. And it's, it's quite significant. And, and historically speaking, boards have tend to generated from the same population of candidates. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see that change um, with a little impetus from a lot of different stakeholders. So, so maybe we, that's a good place to kind of further this a little bit. So how might the GBV framework be applied to drive better discussion and decision-making when it comes to further diversification in the boardroom? So that's another board scenario that I have or board challenge. Um, and even with the independence and the great director, I have a series of questions that Teresa could ask to reframe the issue. And one of them is one that you picked up on, which was, for example, I, she could ask, and this is this constitutes giving voice to, the, to your values, which would be, how does it compare to the emerging best practices around director independence? How does this choice, how does our framework, how does our composition rather look? So those are also acts of voicing values. And so with regard to diversification, that's I, I carry this same company that was was profiled in the independence issue to the diversity issue because it makes sense. These two go together often and they both deal with as, aspects of co of composition, right? Aspects of board composition. So in this particular scenario, there is two problems. A lack of diversity of thought, right? Remember, we have a clubby type of situation, right? Teresa is the only woman on this board, okay? So we've, we've gotten the two direct, two gray directors issue. I fast forward, uh, she was able to, with the help of her board, um, uh, uh, off board one of the gray directors. So now we have sort of a slightly different composition so the CEO, who also happens to be the founder of the company, um, is wanting to, and, and again, this may seem unique, but it is not in my research. This happens quite often. 
um, he wants to put, the CEO wants to put his wife on the board. Now, keep in mind, right, his wife happens to be very accomplished. It is not just a, a familial type of position that uh, is happening. So I position, you know, the CEO is suggesting that Audrey Smith, his wife, who has been um, president of this company's most popular brand for the past 15 years, she's the second largest shareholder, you know, she would bring gender diversity, she has a lot of human resources experience, and the person that was offboarded, you know, they would be replacing, um, you know, she would be replacing the person um, who was the SVP of human resources. So this is the scenario, and again, there's a lot of intricacies involved. And I, I list all of the people on the board and the positions on the board um, so that in this deeper dive in the board challenge number two, um, it asks the, the reader to think about, well, what is the director selection process at this company, which happens to be called PPI? And so um, um, two board members, you know, uh, are, are talking about the director selection process and sort of I'll quote from what I read or wrote. Teresa heard Harry once say with a nervous laugh, we present it like this. We could do this or we could do that. But Dirk, the CEO, definitely gets to decide. So here is a board where, and again, from my research, this is very, very common, where the CEO is involved in the director selection at some point in the process. Usually, in the way that I positioned it, the CEO is involved at the end. They give the seal of approval. Fast forward to some of the reasons and rationalizations, someone might say to you, but that's okay because the CEO has to work with this person. Valid point, but they don't, they shouldn't have the final say on the board. That's the nominating committee's role. And so we, I go through in the preamble to this, what is the role of the nominating committee? What are the um, director selection processes that are out there? Um, not only in the U.S., but, but, all, but all over, right? The nominating committee must be independent. So Audrey Smith, the C, this VP and the, the spouse of the, of the CEO, uh, is, 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 it would be an insider, um, couldn't serve on the nominating committee if she was elected to the board, but she could certainly uh, sit on it on the board. Legally, right? Okay, so the question then for the people in this case is, can she, is she capable of exercising independent judgment? Which is why this goes to the, the previous board challenge, right? So that's sort of an interesting idea. But the general question facing Teresa and two other board members who are um, also on the nominating committee is, is this going to get us to where we need to be diversity-wise. And what we're talking about, I position this specifically because it's an issue of, of diversity of thought as well as diversity of underserved groups. She would represent the second female board member, okay? But, um, you know, is she, would this be uh, a uh, diversity of thought? We also know from the research that Two or more women makes a very big difference. Three or more is even better. I go through a lot of those things, which is something that Teresa, the protagonist, can voice. So I have a list of um, ideas. I, I walk you through what's at stake for all the parties involved, including Teresa, including the two other, you know, the lead director, um, you know, other people on the board. And then I walk through, you know, the materiality, um, uh, uh, 
the standard practice, some of the rationalizations that you're going to get, and how can, you know, Teresa uh, deal with that. So that's, it's a similar, the framework is used throughout both board challenges, but the board challenges are inherently, inherently different. Yeah, no, and I think the the way you've described this, and if I can kind of parrot back your words to you, it, it to me, it's understanding the issue. It's determining what's at stake for a variety of parties, not the least of which is yourself as the board member kind of identifying this issue to bring forth to the board. And then kind of looking at all of the ways where the thought around your way to morally execute on this would be challenged or rationalized by your co-directors and then being able to pre-script your responses to that and be able to anticipate their arguments and counter that and then really find that that really powerful argument. I think that's the one thing I, I, I really took away from your book is finding that most powerful argument that you have that's really going to seal the ability for the other directors to see where they may be tripping themselves up. And I think that's that's kind of the, the powerful tool that I took away. And you obviously had mentioned at the beginning of our discussion several other examples, which are also included in your book. Um, but the one thing I do want to talk about, because I think the way I looked at this is that, you know, I recognize while well, this book is for individual thought and reflection, we can all sit and look at the scenarios and think about how we would do it. It can also be uh, very much be used as an engaging tool to help full boards conduct what I'll call tabletop exercises, right? With one another and working through the scenarios outlined in the book or you know, identify additional concerns that may be with their board. So the five examples you lay out is just the tip of the iceberg, right? But because your framework is useful in the, in the gamut of scenarios that boards may find them in. So I guess, how have you seen boards use this effectively in informing themselves on really how to evolve their thinking and engagement when they think about doing this as a, a tabletop, if you will? I think that's an excellent point. And it's intended to be used by boards. And you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation that it's very practical. And that was that was intended. Um, so when when you're sort of pre-scripting and you're you're talking about the best approach to implement it, I ask in some of my exercises. So I, I run the the reader through this, but I, I also have exercises for boards to execute themselves within each board challenge. So they can do it themselves, or they can have someone like me come in and have them and do the exercise with that board. I've had a lot of success with that because boards feel, in my experience, more comfortable having an expert come in and have the board, have that person run the board through this exercise. And although I've outlined a lot of the ways in which this can, um, can be operationalized, how, how someone can problem solve or reframe or gather data or relationship build or develop a decision tree. And, and even sometimes I ask someone, script this, script this particular you know, uh, uh, issue for yourself and then critique somebody else's script, right? So these are things that I could go into boards and lead that exercise um, in, in person, right, or via Zoom or whatever. So absolutely, I have seen boards use this very effectively because let's face it, there's nothing better than planning for a situation. 
And how do you do that on boards? Not many people have a framework or a format even for planning and, and walking themselves through an exercise, right? I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I liken this, you know, just, just as important to doing things like preparing for a cyber breach. How, how would you handle that? Preparing for, you know, a CEO sudden departure uh, for whatever reason. Like all of those things, they require preparation, planning, et cetera. So I don't think this is really necessarily any different, albeit this is a much broader approach to a variety of situations that I think any board can learn from, whether you're just starting out in your board service journey or whether you're you know, an experienced board member. I think we always have things that we can be learning along the way and picking up from experiences and reflecting on things where, hey, maybe I did have this scenario you know, a while back. And if I really am honest with myself, I probably could have handled it much better and had the whole thing work out a little more smoothly in the process. So I think, I think this is kind of a, something that any board, whatever their experience, any board member, I should say, whatever their experience to date has been could benefit from this type of exercise. So on that, I'm going to personally invite you to join me in doing this in a live setting at some point to be determined. So I'd love to run through this and, you know, offer this out to some of our, our board folks and, and actually do something really fun on this. So audience, stay tuned on that. I do want to highlight that Cynthia's book is available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop, Books a Million, and uh, Rutledge, if I'm saying that correctly. And Cynthia, I'm so looking, uh, Cynthia, excuse me, I'm so looking forward to our continued friendship and working relationship as I always learn a lot from you. So giving voice to values in the boardroom, Cynthia Clark, and I'll give you the final word, Cynthia. Well, thank you very much. I have to say, who who among us has not wished they handled something better? And so this is what the prescripting and the practice is is really about. And I think this really appeals to both the new director because it goes through some of the policies and procedures of each of these issues and the experienced director who will get something different out of this by having exercised all these iterations that a particular thing can go through. And so I'm, I'm very happy to uh, speak with boards about this. I'm excited about this being a real tool for boards to use that I found was lacking out there. And um, I really would like to hear feedback from people if they use it, how they use it, and when they use it. So thank you so much for your time and, and profile me on this, this uh, very good podcast. Thanks, Amy. You're welcome. And thanks to our audience. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit bdo.com slash BDO Knows Governance.